listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. I'm very excited to have my guest today because, well, first of all, he's a legendary drummer from Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But, but he has the most amazing memory because I'm listening to his book called Remain in Love, and I thought I had a good memory, and this gentleman remembers everything with the details. And I, I started listening to the book. And I'm working on it because I didn't know when I got into it. It's 15 hours. Now, if you break it down, that's 15 hours of entertainment. That's more than a season of Breaking Bad. That's a season and a half. But it's more than worth it. And my guest is uh, Chris France. How you doing, Chris? I'm good. Thank you for that fabulous introduction. You're welcome. <laughs> your, your memory. Well, first of all, I know you just turned 70. So I got to ask you, you're, you've traveled the world. You're in a member of a, an amazing, but you've been in an amazing, two amazing bands. What does a guy who's 70 do for his birthday when he becomes 70? Because you've seen everything. Well, it was, it was kind of, a, it was a very happy occasion, but it was small. It was just a, a immediate family. And uh, we had champagne and lobster. And, and we didn't have to wear our masks because we were all, vaccinated and it was really very pleasant and um a a couple of people dropped by and brought more champagne as the as the afternoon wore on it was it was really good and then afterwards i took a super nap (laughs) (laughs) they're the best you know i did that the other day one thing about the, the whole covid thing when you couldn't go out couldn't go in i really perfected the art the fine art of the afternoon nap. It's it's a great art to have because there's nothing worse when you, you know, it's funny when you take that afternoon nap, there's nothing worse than the one that you feel like you're in a deep sleep and you wake up and it's only been 15 minutes and you go, wait, I only got 15 minutes of sleep. I wanted like two hours because I always feel if I get like a two hour nap, then my night, I can wake up earlier in the morning and it still goes towards my like six or seven hours of sleep. Yeah, but I that's true. I, I always... I, I hate waking up after only 15 minutes, but even then it's that, that little disconnect really kind of gives you a recharge, I find. Now, I want to ask you, you, you know, I'm listening to the book. What's the difference between being in a recording studio, making music, which you have done your whole life, to recording a book? I mean, it must be it must be a very a long process because it's, as I said, it's 15 hours, but do you nail it in one take or, I mean, what's, what's the process? Cause it's fascinating to me. Well, um, I, I did it with an engineer. Actually, there were two engineers for the first half. It was uh, a guy named Rick Kwan, who's a great professional engineer And this. For the second half after COVID broke out, um, it was Tina, Tina Weymouth, who engineered. And uh, I get feedback from them. But also, via Skype, there was a, a very nice fellow from McNally Book, uh, no, Macmillan Books. Um, oh, gosh. It's terrible. His name escapes me at the moment. But it, he was a British guy, or maybe Scottish. Anyway, uh, he was the producer and so he, I was expecting him to, I was expecting it to be, 
to have a lot more sort of mistakes than I actually had. But, you know, I don't have a lot of experience. I'm not a voice actor, so I hope I came across okay. It is a lot to listen to. I, I, I think I did it over six sessions, you know. Well, you know, you know what it is. It's, it's, I always think when you listen to someone's life story, it's always better to hear their voice because you relate to it more. I mean, it's like, you know, if I was reading your life story, I don't, I'm, I don't, I didn't experience it. So it's good. And, and I want to talk about your whole career because what's funny is usually when someone has a book, you sit there and, you know, you don't want to have certain excerpts, but you have so much meat in that book that I want to give the people an outline just because so they will go and get the book because, I mean, you remember your aunts, your uncles, friends of yours. Have you, I mean, have you always had this just insane memory or did you have to sit there and actually go back and go, okay, okay, let's see, when I was six, I was here or do you, that will just come back to you? Yeah, um, well, I, you know, I, I, I did not keep journals at, at any point during my life, uh, so I, I, I wish I had, but I, I didn't. But I, I don't know. I'm just blessed with a good memory, I guess. My, my father had that also, that type of recall, and uh, he, he also had an extraordinary sense of direction. Um, and, and I, I have a pretty good sense of direction too. But I think also um, our art arts training at the Rhode Island School of Design really taught you to observe and I mean really observe something that you're you're um, drawing or painting or sculpting or whatever, making a film of. Uh, you ha- you have to look very deeply. And when you do look deeply into an object or a, a, a creature, then you then you uh, you tend to remember that uh, you're not just whizzing by; you're you're really checking it out. <laughs> now, so what made you what made you fall in love with the drums, and 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 why do you think you've kept this romance for all these years? Because when you think about it, musicians play for a long time. Now, someone who's an accountant may work for 30 years, and they don't just sit there at six. They don't go, I want to be an accountant. I mean, some might. But they, then they'll retire after 30 years. You have had a lifelong love with the drums. Yeah. What happened? Why Why have you had this love affair? Well, I I, um, I write about it in my book. When I, when I was in about the fourth or fifth grade, uh, I was... Uh, in uh, elementary school, public elementary school. And I, uh, we were very fortunate back then to have music instruction and uh, band. In in the warm months, it was band. In in the winter, cold months, it was orchestra. And and so uh, I played in both. And and I I started on the trumpet. Uh, that was really what I, I thought. Oh, that, that, those trumpet players look cool, uh, you know. And uh, I, I tried and I tried and I tried and I wasn't just wasn't get, it wasn't happening for me. It, uh, what's the the right word? Is it embouchure? I think so. The the way you form your mouth to play the trumpet, I I just wasn't getting it. So uh, my I had a very wise and and 
kind band instructor. His name was Gene Wilmoth. And he was a, actually a mallet instrument guy, you know, uh, xylophone and marimba and vibraphone. And, and he also played piano and he also played drums. And he said, well, you know, Chris, I can see you're trying and I can, I can see what, what do you say we switch you over to drums? You have a, you seem to have a good sense of rhythm. Let's switch you over to drums and see what happens. And, and he did. And I, I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. And it, when when he said switching me over to drums, that was not like a drum kit and where you, you know, it, that was a, a a wooden block with a rubber pad attached to it and a pair of sticks. <laughs> and you started practicing your rudiments, you know, and it, it, gradually you get better and better, and, and you get you're able to do more complicated things. But but anyway. Um, uh, that was how I got started. And, and right about that same time that I was switching to drums, the Beatles came out. The Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan and, uh, you know, changed a whole lot of lives, I believe. And, and mine was one of them. And I, I just like, look at them. Look how much fun they're having. Look how the girls adore them. You know, look how much fun that guy Ringo's having up there. And, and I thought, well, the, clearly, this is what I want to do, uh, you know. And, and uh, it, so it was like a dream from age twelve, I think it was, when the Beatles came out to to, uh, to right up to, you know, it was a dream I had. And, 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 and my book is about how hard we all had to work to 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 make that dream come true. You know, it's funny, and I said the book, it's. It's it just there's so much detail and that it's amazing because a lot of times when you read books, you listen to a book is like four hours. As I said, yours is is very long. I want you to go through some of the main points because, as I said, with your book, there's so much detail you can tell main point. It doesn't take away from the story because you're missing out. It'd be like watching a movie in thirty minutes when yours is forever. How did the Talking Heads begin? Well, Talking Heads began when when. Um... David Byrne and I had a band at Rhode Island School of Design called the Artistics, and it was uh, sort of a prototypical punk band, I think you could say. But we played mostly cover songs, and uh, most of those songs were like, uh, uh, well, garage rock songs, and also a little Velvet Underground and a little. Uh, you know, can't explain by the who, and we like the trogs, and we we played uh, we played you know garage rock, and uh, we were doing all these covers, and we were having a good time. The band was called the Artistics, and uh, we we performed. The sole reason for the band was to perform at uh, parties for our friends and and school dances, of which we did a couple. And, and um, uh, th- we didn't have any ambitions beyond that. But then one day, I think David and I were talking, and, and, and uh, we thought, well, maybe we should try to write a song. And David went home, and Tina, w- Tina was uh, my girlfriend at the time, and also stu- she was also studying painting, and she and I shared a studio 
at the school and a painting studio. And uh, one day there was a knock on the door. Tina and I were working. There's a knock on the door and it was David with his, you know, acoustic guitar. And he says, I've got the beginnings of a song, but I'd like you to, you know, uh, work with me on it. And uh, he had this idea that the bridge of the, the middle section of the song should be in a foreign language to, to signify some kind of psychotic break. Uh, the, the name of the song was Psycho Killer. And uh, David said it, he had modeled it loosely on uh, the whole Alice Cooper phenomenon that was happening at the time. Alice Cooper was like the number one touring artist and recording artist in the country at the time. So it was kind of tongue in cheek, uh, the way Alice Cooper would be. Anyway, by the, by the time the song was performed, we realized people really liked this. And I thought, you know, we thought it was good, but you never know if people are gonna like it or not. And they really did like immediately. And so we thought, hmm. It, it made me think that 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 I should I should continue to work with David and move to New York City upon graduation from RISD and start a band. And uh, David was up for moving to New York, and when I asked him if he wanted to start a band, he said, "I guess so." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <coughs> so. Uh, that's how it happened. And Tina moved, Tina was not in the band to begin with, uh, but she was not a member of the artistics, but she, uh, she was very supportive of, she, she loved it, you know, and I could tell by uh, dancing with Tina that she had a, a, a very fine, finely tuned sense of rhythm. And uh, I knew from, from speaking with her and being with her that she shared a, a similar aesthetic to the, to David and I appreciated the same types of music, you know, uh, were interested in the avant-garde things like that. So, so, uh, eventually we, we, we all three moved to New York and, uh, I, I got a loft. I invited Tina to live with me, and then I invited David to live with me. The three of us lived in that loft on 195 Christie Street, just just below Houston. And uh, David and I started playing. And we thought, oh, we'll we'll meet musicians in New York, and we did meet musicians, but they all already had a band, or they they weren't they didn't seem particularly keen on working with David and I. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, eventually uh, I, I kept asking Tina if she would like join us. And she kept saying, no, no, that's a guy thing. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a boys club and, and it would just be, mean a lot of trouble. <laughs> and, uh, but one day, uh, she came walking into the loft with a bass guitar, a Fender, Fender Precision, I think a 1962. Anyway, it's a vintage, great bass guitar. And uh, she had been buying it on layaway, like $5 a week. You know? 
And I, it had just been her birthday at, at the end of November, and uh, her parents gave her a hundred dollars, and so she was able to go uh, get get whoop, get the base, and uh, you know, then we were a trio, and we were a trio for a long time. Uh, am I wandering? <laughs> no, this is. I love this. I because I, I love the scene. You know, I've, I've recently interviewed Clem Burke, and I uh, just. Oh yeah. And I've interviewed a few people. I've interviewed in the past Richard Lloyd, who were all involved in that early New York scene, and I love hearing it from you guys because it's music that me and my friends all listen to, but it came from somewhere, and, and that's what fascinates me. Like for you, when you were trio, now when did when did you become a, a foursome? We, we became a foursome uh, just before just before we made our first record album and uh, we became we became a foursome after we signed a, a recording contract because we were in, we were scouting Jerry Harrison who had you know played keyboards and guitar and had been with the modern lovers the original version of that band and uh, we really liked that Modern Lovers album. And <clears throat> a friend, uh, actually a friend of my mother's said to me, you know, Chris, I have a nephew who goes to Harvard and he's in a band. And I said, oh, really? And uh, she said, yes, his name is Ernie Brooks. And she gave me Ernie's number. And Ernie was the bass player of the Modern Lovers. So one day I bumped into Ernie in New York City. I recognized him. He had a big head of curly hair. And um, uh, what was that place called? The Local. It was called The Local in the, in the West Village. And um, uh, we were having dinner there. I recognized Ernie Brooks. I went over and introduced myself and I said, do you know how we could get in touch with Jerry Harris for me? So I called Jerry and we, uh, we, we got together. We, we actually did a gig in Cambridge just so Jerry could see the band play. It's the first time a band has auditioned for a keyboard player, <laughs> but, um, or maybe not, but I think it might be. <laughs> and he really liked it, but he didn't want to join the band until he because of his experience with the Modern Lovers, which was, um, you know, the band broke up just before they made a record deal. And uh, he wanted to make sure we had a record deal before he joined the band and that it was all signed. And, and so we did that eventually. Uh, we, we made our record deal with Sire Records in New York and uh, the same label the Ramones were on. And... Uh, Jerry joined the band, and he was an excellent addition. One of the best things we ever, smartest things we ever did, was bring Jerry in because Jerry, uh, he didn't he didn't change the, uh, the the way we sounded or anything like that. He just amplified it and made it uh, uh, more more cohesive, you know. So it, it was. Uh, it's a great idea to bring Jerry in. Great how, idea to bring Tina in. 
how hard was it for you guys to get that record deal? Because, you know, you hear all different stories. Like some people, you know, they go, they jump through hoops. They jump through, you know, was it, was it easy for you? Because you were, it was a new, a beginning of a new sound. Yeah, well, we actually, uh, we actually turned down record deals, which is, uh, it sounds so crazy now. But at the time, we just knew we weren't ready. Uh, to make an album. We had seen bands that made an album maybe a little bit too soon, and, and they never got a chance to make another record after a, the first one was a flop. So, um, so, so if famously, we, uh, we were offered a record deal by Seymour Stein of Sire Records, and uh, we just said, Seymour, we really like you, but we're not ready yet. And this really drove him crazy <laughs> because he, he was, he, he was imagining that some other record company was going to snatch us out from under him, you know, and that never happened. But, uh, and it's a good thing because Sire Records was great for us, you know, a small record company located in New York city and uh, not in some skyscraper in Los Angeles or whatever. So, so, uh, yeah, we, 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 we were, we really took our time making, we made Seymour wait for 18 months uh, until we said, okay, we're ready now. And, uh, how did you know you weren't ready? Like, I mean, and that's such, you know, because that's such a big thing because people who are musicians, they, they, they can't wait for that record contract. And, and in hindsight, you made a very mature decision because you knew if it screwed up, you wouldn't play again. But how, how do you sit there as a young musician and say, now nah, we're not ready. When you have this carrot dangling in front of you, how did you guys know you weren't ready for it? Well, we, we did make some demos and we made one for, uh, Columbia, uh, CBS records uh, in the big CBS studios. Uh, an A and R man named Mark Spector took us took us into uh, the CBS studios in, in Manhattan. The famous big ones, you know, where they recorded West Side Story and Frank Sinatra and stuff like that. And uh, we set up. This was a trio. We set up, and he said, "Just." run through your set, you know, and we'll record you live. And, um, and we did that. And, you know, listening back to it, it's really fun to hear and everything, but it, it doesn't sound like a band that's, uh, you want to listen to repeatedly. We knew that, um, there's a difference between live and recording like live. You can be exciting and, 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 and you, you can make mistakes and people forgive you because you're immediately on to the next part of the song. But when you, when you're playing, when you're recording a record that you, you want that to be something that will uh, stand up to repeated listenings. And, and we, we just realized by making these demos of our, in our early years that uh, we weren't really uh, to the, to the level we wanted to be yet. We were close, but, we had to get a little bit more. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't want to say commercial because we we were never really too concerned with commerciality, but we wanted to have a little more finesse. 
So you get you get to that point. Now, what were your live gigs like back then? I mean, what what was the scene like? That's like it's such a different different time when you think about it. You know, now it's you know there's all these clubs and scenes, but you guys are going to the new places. What was that like for you guys? Was it was it was it exciting or was it a little scary because you you're covering ground that no one's really been in? I never felt like it was scary, but but I did. I did feel excited. It was an exciting time uh, and very romantic, you know, uh, in the true sense of the word. And, you know, um, not every night was fantastic and not every, uh, every, you know, not every performance was what you wanted it to be. Not every audience was what you had hoped they would be, you know, but some nights were, you know, pure magic. And, th- and that's what keeps you going. And, and as we went on, we had more and more of those, more and more of the pure magic. And it was great. Now, when, well, first of all, when's the first time you heard a Talking Head song on the radio? Do you remember? Because I'm sure you probably remember because you remember everything. Well, yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I would remember that, wouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> it, it was uh, somewhere up, up in upstate New York, uh, we were going to a college radio station to do an interview because uh, we we had a gig in town that night. I think it may have been Binghamton, New York. Probably was Binghamton. Anyway, uh, we go up this hill, and I thought, well, we'll turn on, you know, and we're driving my family station wagon that I inherited from my mom and dad. We could fit the whole band and our gear in one station wagon in those early days. <laughs> and uh, incredible. But, but then um, I decided to tune into the station we were headed to to see if they uh, were talking about the interview we were going to do. And we heard them playing Psycho Killer. And uh, that was the first time. And it was, every, everybody was like, whoa. You know, and I still get excited every time I hear us on the radio. And thank God I still do hear us on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> now, now as, you're, as you're going along, when did you guys start feeling that you were making strides and getting more popular? Was there a certain point where you said, okay, you know what? People are buying us. Because I think any kind of artist always worries. Like, you know, you, you feel that you, you know you've done a good job, but you feel unappreciated at times. And I think anyone in life does that. I do it all the time. I mean, I sit there and I go, go wait a second. You know, I, I don't feel appreciated. But for you, when did you guys feel like you started getting appreciated by your listeners and getting a good fan base? Um, well, you know, we, we were very fortunate to be offered this tour of, I, I, I write about this in my book. Sorry, my phone. <laughs> Let me just. Um, yeah, I'm back. <laughs> um, uh, we, we were very fortunate to be offered just about the time we were putting the finishing touches on our first album. We were offered a, a, a springtime tour of the capitals of Europe is how they built it opening for the Ramones, supporting the Ramones. And we, we, uh, 
we jumped at the opportunity. It was my first uh, first time ever to Europe. It was also Jerry's first time ever to Europe. Uh, David was from Scotland, so he had been to Scotland, but I don't think he'd ever been to the, the continent. And Tina was had a lot of her mother was French, so, so she'd been to France and Italy, but I don't think she'd been much in the rest of Europe. Anyway, it was a very exciting thing, and we started off in Zurich, Switzerland. And um, it was... Uh, every night was sold out. Every night was like pandemonium and uh, really exciting. And uh, it, it was great to know that the Ramones audience could appreciate Talking Heads and vice versa, and it made a great double bill. And and we did this uh, for about six weeks, and uh, all over. Well, we, we played at the Roundhouse in London uh, with the Ramones, of course, and uh, you know everybody was in the audience. The Clash, the Sex Pistols. The Jam, the Slits, the Damned. It was like the, the heyday of punk. We weren't really punk, but we, sh- we shared a lot of the same audience with these bands. And it, it was just a great time. I'm sorry, I don't know why my, I'm going to turn it off altogether. It's probably one of those people trying to sell you a warranty. <laughs> yeah, probably. So, uh, uh, ask me another question. Okay, kind of got distracted there. Okay, no. Well, we were talking about you were you were in the roundhouse in um, with and everyone oh. was in the audience. Oh yeah. Well, um, you know, we 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 were suddenly um, getting a lot of attention in the music press and and on the radio in the UK and also Holland. And a little bit in France, quite a quite a good deal of airplay in Belgium, and we had this popularity building, and you know, very sort of underground, bubbling under kind of popularity, but it still it was building, and um, but we we got a reputation in the United States then for uh, being famous in Europe, and that really helped us. Previous to the, before that tour, we couldn't even get a gig in New Jersey, really, because, uh, or, or, or Long Island, except for my father's place. But, but uh, you know, there were a lot of places we, 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 we had no, uh, there was no demand for us until we did that tour of Europe. So that was a, that was a real breakthrough. Now, what's it like as you start getting bigger and you start headlining and people and you're the one thing about your band is also you've always been very critically acclaimed because you've had a a great sound a different sound what is that like as a musician do you sit there and feel that you know you've made it or do you not want to rest on your laurels as you're getting bigger and bigger yeah, we, we, we tried not to appear to be resting on our laurels. Um, uh, we, we, you know, it was pretty gradual for us. We, we didn't have, we never had enormous uh, 
commercial success. I mean, uh, we never got to Madonna or Michael Jackson levels of success, or even the police. Police sold a hell of a lot more records than we ever did. But, but uh, you're right. We had a good artistic credibility, and, and I think it's pretty unusual to we were we were. We were having enough commercial success that, that we were very comfortable and the record company was making money and everything was going well, you know, uh, and, it, and but it was, we never had that overwhelming kind of uh, success like Elvis or something. <laughs> it wasn't like that, but it was very gratifying to me. I realize that it might have been a lot of pressure for David, but I don't know. He seems to be carrying on with the same type of thing. So, now, how? What do you think the role of MTV played in your in your career? Because you know, MTV was music, and we all watched it. And your videos were were great videos. And MTV could make or break, and then all of a sudden people be, you would get recognized more because everybody watched MTV. What was your, what, how do you think it affected your career? Uh, well, it, it gave us a, a big boost. Um, the, the first, the first video once in a lifetime was something that David made, uh, unbeknownst to the rest of the band, uh, with, uh, his his uh, girlfriend at the time. Oh, what's her name? The the choreographer and actress who did Mickey and, and Tony Basil. Yeah, Tony Basil. Thank you. Tony was really the director on that video. So, uh, but we saw it and we said, "Oh, this is undeniably good." So, so uh, it was released to MTV. And in the very early days of MTV, and then it, after that, it was just a succession of more and more making more and more videos to be shown on, you know, video channels. And I remember our manager saying, "Oh, this is going to be terrible because everybody's going to have to like wear makeup and look, get their hair done, and uh, you know, look their best." And uh, he didn't like that aspect of it. Uh, but we, having been to art school and, and enjoying like visual things, we thought, well, we can use this to, um, as, as, as an art form <laughs> without sounding, trying to sound too pretentious, but we treat it as an art form instead of just a commercial for a band. So, so that's what we did. And I think we did a pretty good job of it. Well, you did, and you know it's funny, and it is true. You know, if you're if you have it, if you look at it as an artistic uh, venture instead of a you know something else, it actually comes from your heart, and I think people see that. And your videos were they were different, and that, and that's what's good. And you know, because everything after a while, back then, videos started getting the same. It's like a Hallmark movie; they're all the same, you know. But you guys came with something different. Now, you in you you and Tina. Which, first of all, what's, what's it like working with your wife for all these years? Because, you know, people who have small businesses, they work. Now, you guys are working together. What is that like? What has that been like? Well, it's it's been great. 
it's not always easy for Tina or for me, you know, uh, but, but we've managed to, to navigate all those difficult moments. And I mean, there haven't been that many. Anyway, I love working with Tina. I, I write in the book that I've really never known it any other way. I've been working with her since 1975. So, no, 1974. So, so it's been a long time. And uh, I think we're still a, a darn good combination. Well, you are. And, and Tom Tom Club was great. And now, what was that like when you guys decided to form that? Because was, was there any... David was going to do a solo career. Was that... Were you guys fine with that? And you just wanted to create your own project and go a different route with your music? I mean, what is it like when you're starting to form a band when you've been involved in a band? Yeah. Um, well, it was not, it was never our intention to do a, a, a talking head, anything outside of talking heads. Uh, we, our hand was kind of forced because David announced that he was doing a solo project. And then Jerry said, well, if David's going to do it, I'm going to do a solo project. And, uh, Tina and I, uh, our accountants said to us, you better do something. Uh, so uh, we were very fortunate in that uh, Chris Blackwell uh, invited us to come down to Compass Point Studios in, in the Bahamas where we had recorded more songs about buildings and food and Remain in Light. So we had spent a good deal of time there. We were the Talking Heads was the first band to record at that studio. And um, he said, come on down, make a single. If I like the single, then you can do a whole album. And we said, great. And we went down, we cut a song called Wordy Rapping Hood. And Wordy Rapping Hood was like a prototypical hip-hop rap uh, dance um, uh, polyrhythmic thing, <laughs> and uh, it, 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 I, we were signed to Island Records for um, the UK, Europe, and and Latin America, and it, it went. To, it was a hit in all of those areas, all those regions, and in fact, I just did an interview with Belgium where it was a number one hit for something like ten weeks. So anyway, it was it was crazy. So then we we uh, he said, "Go ahead, make a whole album now." So we did, and uh, it was again. It was like one of those pure magic times when everything just seemed to work out so well. <laughs> I mean, we worked we worked really hard on it. We really did, but uh, the work was the work was so good. <laughs> where where were you pulling from to get those the sound and the writing? Where where was it coming from? Well, at the time we were listening to uh, like dance club music. Like <clears throat> we we imagined that we should make a record that that would sound good at the Mud Club or Danceteria or the Paradise Garage, and and thank goodness we succeeded at that. But but that we were listening to uh, dance music, reggae music, 
dub music, dub reggae music. Um, we were starting to uh, listen to uh, bands like King Sunny Ade were being signed, African bands. Uh, it was, uh, we listened to all kinds of stuff. I mean, we also were very fond of ACDC. <laughs> so, you know, it was, our, our, our musical tastes were all across the board there. Now, you also did an album, The Heads, with Jerry Harrison. How did that come about? And it's the best title of an album, No Talking, Just Head. Such a great title. Now people will be like, what do you mean? That's so offensive. And they'll be like, no, it's this. I know, I know. It was, it was, meant, it was meant to be kind of uh, a shocker of a title, which it was. But, but, but yeah, we did that because we, we wanted to make another Talking Heads album, but David continued to uh, refuse to work with the rest of us. So we did a, a record with a different lead singer, well-known singers uh, on each song. Some of them more well-known than others, but I mean, for example, we had Michael Hutchins and Debbie Harry and Andy Partridge from XTC and Maria McKee uh, and uh, Richard Hell and uh, you know, it was a really interesting, Johnette Napolitano, it was a really interesting bunch of singers, and they collaborated with us on, on each song, and uh, and then we did a tour, but unfortunately, uh, critics and uh, music press in general uh, was not, f- uh, let's just say that they, they their attitude was, how dare they make an album without David Byrne? <laughs> now, now, why did he refuse? You said he refused to make an album with you guys. And, and was that was that hurtful for you? It was, um, he didn't just refuse, he threatened to sue us. <laughs> so it, it, you could say it was hurtful, but, you know, that's water under the bridge. What the hell, that was... That was 1996. Now, what made you decide to write a book? Everyone, you know, everyone, you know, you've had this great career. And what, what, what's this there? Because when you write a book, you're, and especially for your book, because you're really, you're opening up your whole life. Okay. As I said, it's very, you're very descriptive and details, very impeccable. That's open to your, that opens you up to a lot of, you know, if someone was to say they didn't like the book, you would be like, well, this is my life. So what made you decide to write it? And, and were you worried about how some people may, if people react and how you would feel? Um, I, I had some qualms about, um, I, the last thing I wanted in my book was to sound like, uh, a memoir written by a grumpy old man. <laughs> that was not what I was hoping to convey to my readership. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I feel very fortunate. And the, the, the reason I wanted to write the book was Talking Heads was such a good band and we did such wonderful work together that I would like to, like people who listen to our music to understand how it was really a shared experience between the, 
the various members of the band and the sidemen who came in later and how the whole thing worked and uh, the, the way the history would, has uh, been written or uh, continues to be written is that it, it was kind of a, a, a one-man show but it was not a one-man show David Byrne is ex- very, very important to the, the success and the, the, the uh, wonderful artistic enterprise that was Talking Heads. But Tina is also very important, and so is Jerry, and so am I. So, so I, wanted to, I wanted people to know, I'm not complaining about my lot in life. I'm very happy to be the drummer in, in these various bands, you know. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to, you know, people to know that that it, it was a more shared experience. Well, yeah, I think we know. I mean, the thing that the fans know that, and it's like anything, you know, when when a basketball team, when one guy is like the highest scorer, they forget that it's everybody that takes you to the championship in the top. And now, talking about championships, they just announced the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The people entering. Tell me your Rock and Roll Hall of Fame experience, because I just I talked to Phil Manzanera the other day, and he told me about when Brian Ferry texted all them that Rocky's, Roxy Music made it. But tell me about your what to you, about your Rock and Roll experience, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame experience, and and does it mean a lot to you? Well, uh, you know, yeah, I guess it means a lot. I got I got my little statue over there on the other side of the room, but with the Grammy and the Moon Men. <laughs> you know, uh, but um, well, it was really fun to get back together with David and and Jerry and uh, and Tina and to play. It's too bad we only got one night to do it and and three songs. <laughs> but uh, but it was it was a, a good experience for me. And you know, uh, people people have a lot of opinions about the rock and roll hall of fame and I have my opinions too, but, but I can tell you that as a musician, when you, when you get the call that you're about to be inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame, it gave me a very good feeling because it was not something I ever anticipated, but, uh, but there it was. And it happened on the same night that we were in the Ramones were inducted the same night and Tom Petty and Isaac Hayes. It was it was a great night. Gene Pitney. You know. Now tell me tell me a story that didn't make the book. Tell me something that you wanted to make the book and it didn't. Was there anything that the editors didn't let you put in? Was I want because I want to hear that because I want to hear something that's not in the book. But, you know, uh, uh, you're going to have to wait for the next okay. book, the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, there were a few things that the attorney said, no, you can't say that. Uh, a lot of it was because of the, uh, you know, the sort of uh, what the right wing likes to call being overly politically correct. But you have to, you know, you just, when you're writing a book, you have to listen to what the libel lawyers tell you. And uh, and I did. And I a few things were not but, you know, like I said, this was not that type of book. It was not a libelous book. 
not by a long stretch of the imagination. Now, when you finally sat down, the book was finished. Were you happy with the final product? Or did you sit there after and go, oh, I should have done that. Oh, damn. I mean, what, what was what, what was the, what happened? Well, it's my first book, so I, I don't, I don't uh, want to be, I don't want to beat myself up. I'm, I'm sure there are a few things that, that could have been different or, or, or somehow uh, more eloquent, but... You know, when I before I wrote the book, um, I sat down with Ian Hunter, you know, from Mott the Hoople, and, and uh, he lives in Connecticut also. And uh, we had a mutual friend. We met for lunch, and I, he wrote a book that I really enjoyed called Diary of a Rock and Roll Star. And uh, so when, when I sat down to lunch with Ian Hunter, I said, Ian, I really enjoyed your book. Uh, tell, I'm thinking of writing my own memoir. Do you have any advice for me? And he said, well, mate, all I can tell you is to write in your own voice and don't make shit up. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so that's what I did. Now, looking back on your fascinating career, what, what is the, what are two of your favorite moments that have happened to you in your life? Okay. Um, one of my favorite moments is uh, when I was, it was autumn, September in 1971, and I was sitting in this little park at the Rhode Island School of Design uh, at, next to a busy intersection where all the students would go back and forth. And I was sitting on the grass with a friend and I, it was the beginning of the school year. And I looked, I looked to my left and there was a girl coming down the street, Benefit Street on an old, you know, three speed bicycle painted yellow. And she looked really great. And as she went by, I thought, oh my God, that, that girl is fabulous. And uh, I turned to my friend, who was a, a, the, one of the models at the school, uh, artist models, Charlie the model, they called him. I said, Charlie, did you see her? And he said, oh, yes, that's my friend Martina. I said, oh, Martina. Hmm. And that was the first time I ever laid eyes on Tina Weymouth. So, and I remember it. It's like a, like a Truffaut movie, you know in my mind and so there's that and then then i would i would say another time was um when genius of love the tom tom club song genius of love hit in america i was walking down houston street walking west on houston street and you know when you hit sixth avenue there's um uh, at Sixth Avenue in Houston, there's a huge basketball court, you know, like a, like a park of basketball courts. And everybody was uh, a lot of young guys playing basketball with their boom boxes all tuned to WBLS. And just as I was coming around the corner of the basketball court there, Genius of Love came on. And 
Now, there were like eight basketball courts in this park, and they were all dancing to Genius of Love. And I thought, well, you know what? This is a, this is a, it doesn't get any better than this, really, <laughs> as an artist, you know? And uh, I, that, was, that was a pretty high moment for me. Oh, um, there were so many, but I'm, I'm going to say uh, arriving in Japan for the first time and uh, thinking, wow, everybody's Japanese. <laughs> and uh, it, they treated us so well there. I mean, they, we were just a, we, we had like two records out there at the time and uh, they, they just really, the record companies and the promoter, a young guy, really rolled out the red carpet. And we, and we, we met our friends, the Plastics, who were a design group that became a band. And uh, it was just a wonderful time. I love that moment. Well, that's awesome. Now, what have you been doing during this whole pandemic, well, I've been I've been sitting tight, you know. <laughs> but now now I'm doubly vaccinated. Uh, no, we've been, there've been four of us in this house, a, a little pod of four, four humans, three dogs, and uh, we just really kept to ourselves. I I, I even hired a uh, professional professional shopper to uh, go to the grocery store for us and stuff because <clears throat> uh, I didn't want to take any chances but now we're doubly vaccinated all of us and we can we can begin to party again it is a great feeling you know my wife and me have been very careful and, and after we both doubly vaccinated I got I got to get my vaccination early because I have an irregular heartbeat, so I've had problems with that. So they said get that done. But I'll tell you, man, the first day she was double vaccinated, we went to all you can eat sushi, and it was like a party because it was like, and everybody was just in a great mood. So it's good. So I have one final question. What's a question that you want people to ask you that they never ask you? Oh. Who's going to play Chris France in the biopic? Now, who do you think? Who would you like to see you play you? Well, you know, Brad Pitt's too old now. <laughs> um, gee, I don't know, man. I mean, there's so many good young actors. That's one of the, I mean, thank God for Netflix and YouTube and all, you know, all the, all the streaming services, but I'm discovering new actors all the time that I I had never heard of. So who knows? Okay. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. Now you're on Twitter. You seem to tweet a lot. I tweet a, a now and then I'm picking up. I've been picking up since I had this book out because uh, it seems like people who read like to tweet. Yes. And now the, the website is Tom Tom club. And there's information about the book there. And you can get the book on Amazon. And you can get it hardback, softback, audible, Kindle. Listen, I, I sit there with my Alexa and I say, 
play the book. And it plays it. And I can sit there instead of reading it. I can just sit there and, and lay down and have a glass of iced tea and listen to the book. So people, get the book. It's really good. It, it's Give yourself, you know, if you're going on vacation, perfect vacation listen. You're by the pool, relaxing. It's 15 hours. And it's called Remain in Love. And Chris, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on. People, go to the website, Tom Tom Club. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 850 episodes on there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. At Twitter, it's at coopertalk. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.